Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and on today's special edition of the show we're speaking to Corporal Retired Ronnie Daly, a historian, on the life and death of Richard McKee and the history of McKee, formerly Marble Barracks, here in Dublin. And we're looking at this in the context of the 100th anniversary of the death of McKee along with Paddock Clancy and Conor Clune and the events that came to be known as Bloody Sunday in 1920. So welcome on to the show, Ronnie. Thanks for coming yeah, on. Thank you very much. So I suppose, as we always do, we just want to get a bit of a, an introduction to yourself. So, you, so you're a former member of the Defence Forces. Um, where did you serve and, and what were the main points well, of your career? Well, I come from a good military background. Uh, my, uh, my uncle fought in the Kerry No. 1 Brigade during the War of Independence, and then he had to leave the country because there was a, a threat on his life from the British, and uh, he went to America. And his wife followed him out there to America, and they married out there. They had a couple of sons. Uh, two of them, one of them fought in Vietnam as a, a fighter pilot, and the other fellow was a military policeman. Uh, he also formed the Kerrymans Association out there in America, and they, they still carried the flag on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, my brother was in the Army. He served in the 2nd Battalion in Cathabrough Barracks, and he served with the 53rd Battalion in, in Lebanon. He was in the number one in the pipe band in the 2nd Battalion. Uh, my son is a servant sergeant, 18 years service. He's serving in the 7th Battalion. My grandson has three years service, and he's serving in the 7th Battalion also. I joined the Army in 1974, trained in the CT depot, uh, passed out as best shot in the depot, and then I spent four years in the 2nd Battalion myself. From there then, while in the 2nd Battalion, I served uh, a number of posts on the border, Dundalk, Casablaney, Coote Hill, Monaghan. Then I went on a driver's course in 1988, and from 1988 to, 80, to 1992, I served in two field S&T and barracks. On the closure of Consens barracks, then I moved to Cattlebury barracks. Uh, in Cattlebury Barracks then, I transferred over to McKee Barracks, McKee Barracks Company to work in the officer's mess nearer to home. And then I was approached by the head chaplain at the time, uh, Monsignor Ontoyan, about working for him as a sacristan, which I went to do and finished my last 10 years working in McKee Barracks and looking after Arbor Hill Church and the church here in McKee. Uh, I served four tours overseas. I served with the 47th Battalion, uh, the 55th Battalion, the 17th Company, 17th Battalion, uh, the 17th Component, and the 71st Battalion in Lebanon. Well, so that's, is that tr- three towards Lebanon, or is it four? Four towards Lebanon. Four towards Lebanon. Wow. And since, since your retirement, Ronnie, you've, you're, well, you're also an, a, hist- a historian as well, and you've, you've been involved in, in, in cataloguing the history um, around McKee and, and around other places. Yeah, well, I've always been into the history. You know, when one's young and looking at reading books about the Second World War, you can never go and visit these places. But when you start reading Irish history, you can actually go and see bullet holes and walls and feel them. You can go to graveyards and see where these people are buried. Uh, I'm involved with the Michael Collins Society with a group of ex-soldiers as well. And for the last 25 years, we've been looking after Michael Collins' grave every Saturday in Glasnevin Cemetery. We put fresh flowers on. We have a website. We get donations from around the world. We're also a member of the Irish Volunteer Group. We dress up and do reenactment. We go around to schools, show weapons. I have a, a massive array of, of uh, memorabilia that I bring to schools to show around to kids and that, you know. I'm also a member of the UNFA, United Nations Veterans Association, and the PRO down there. The yeah. PRO for them down there as well, and we do tour, guided tours down there as well. I also do guided tours in the city, like walk from Mount Street to Moor Street, uh, Glass Devon Cemetery, Grange Garment Cemetery, McKee Barracks, Arbor Hill area. So. Fantastic, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, really, it's really important, obviously, if you're going to schools and stuff, to make people aware and make, make 
the young people aware of kind of the history that we have around well, especially due tells especially during the 1960 commemoration for the 1960 commemorations we went to schools and we put our stuff out on the tables and the kids were great you know they did ask you did you were you in the 1916 right <laughs> uh things like that but as i said we, we have memorabilia from 1916 my own personal collection like medals and stuff like that you know yeah so and it's quite valuable and hopefully someday we had a museum here when i was serving we had a small museum here in the back of the church i had and hopefully someday if you get a museum going to the barracks, we can move some of that stuff back in, you know. Here in McKee Barracks, yeah. to the barracks, here yeah, the Defence Forces, you know. Fantastic. And you're also the co-author of uh, The Concise History of McKee Barracks with Paul O'Brien as well. Yeah, I mean, I arrived over here in 1974 in the back of a truck to, to run the Uncousin Tower. And when I got over the back of the truck, like, I'd been trained in Caterpillar Barracks at just a grey building. And I'd never been seen this barracks before because I'm from the inner city, like so I would never be up around this area. So... Been training in Caterpillar Barracks in the city that we were brought over here in the back of a truck. And when I got out of the back of the truck, we fell in the front of it. And I looked down the square and I seen this massive building and it just captivated me from then on. I just, anytime I got a chance, when I became a driver, I volunteered to come over here and drive the regiment or go to the ranges. I got a chance to look around the barracks, uh, especially on the airlifts here. I spent hours on the airlifts here, go off, wander around the place. And then, of course, I got a chance to come here to the barracks itself, which I actually loved, and especially serving here in the mess itself as well. And I just got a love of the barracks and I wanted to know more and more about it and I wanted to know its history of the barracks and why it was built here and why the building was shaped like this and uh, the characters that served in it. Yeah. And then over the years, I just started collecting this material and then I decided to try and do a book on it. But to be honest with you, I wasn't that educated. You know, I left school at 13 years of age. But a great friend of mine who's a historian, Paul O'Brien, and a great author. So I went to Paul and talked to Paul. So Paul said, give me what you have. So he was able to put this together and... Uh, between the two of us, we produced this beautiful book on the history of McKay Barracks. Fantastic. And we're going to go into a little bit on the history later on in the podcast, but just for people at home who may not know, the barracks is a fabulous red brick building. It's a very, very distinctive building. We'll go into some of the architecture points about it a little bit later, but what, what, what Ronnie's talking about is, is it's an incredibly distinctive and beautiful building, a set of series of buildings here near the Phoenix Park. But I suppose where we, what we might go into now is... is we're obviously doing the podcast in the context of the 100th anniversary of the events that became known as Bloody Sunday and of the deaths of, of Dick McKee, Connor Clune and Pat Clancy and specifically focusing on, on Richard McKee. Um, who, who was Richard McKee for people at home? The kind of broad life and times um, and what role was he playing in the Irish independence movement um, up until 1920? Well, that particular weekend, uh, as is known as Bloody Sunday, as you know, what happened in Crow Park and prior to that, what happened to the 14 British boys in Dublin and then prior to what happened to that with Dick McKee and Pat Clancy and Connor Clune. Uh, Dick McKee, of course, was a, a Dubliner. He came from a family of five, and they lived first in Fisbury. And his father died when he was young, and he moved down to Fingus. Uh, Dick worked as an assistant. He trained as a, a compositor for Gills and Son. That's a, a bookshop in uh, O'Connell Street. And uh, actually, he set up a foreign range in there later on during the War of Independence. So they used to get on the ground and do a bit of foreign and that, like down there, you know. So he was a compositor for Gills and Son, a very famous uh, book company. Uh, in 1913, at the inception of the, of the Irish Volunteers, he joined the Irish Volunteers and he joined G Company of the Dublin Brigade. Because of his leadership skills and his training skills, uh, it came to him later on that he became Director of Training in, in GHQ during the War of Independence. But because of his lead, leadership skills, he became an officer in, in uh, <coughs> G Company. So, McKee had joined G Company, 2nd Battalion, Dublin Brigade. And uh, during the 1916 Easter Rising, he fought under Thomas McDonough in Jacob's Biscuit Factory. Now, McDonough was one of the 1916 leaders uh, later executed for his part in the Rising. Also serving in Jacob's that time was Sean McBride, another one who was executed for his part in the 1916 Easter Rising. Uh, 
McKee showed the skills from witness statements from other volunteers that served inside the Jacobs Biscuit Factory. And their job, of course, it's a massive building, it's still there. Their job was to oversee, look at stopping troops coming out of Portobello Barracks, which is now Cahill Barracks, and stop troops coming out from the Dublin Castle area. Uh, McKee showed the skills in there, and it was noticed by other volunteers in the witness statements that, like, CBs were outside complaining about the place and all that, and they couldn't quieten them down. McKee went down and quieten them down, and his leadership skills was unbelievable. McDonough noticed it, McBride noticed it, and the other volunteers noticed it. Uh, after the surrender, then, McKee was taken to Richmond Barracks, and uh, he was sent from there then to, in a cattle boat to uh, Cornsforth Prison in England, and from there then he was sent up to Fran Gock in North Wales. And North Wales, is, of course, was, uh, as they call it, the School of Revolution in Fran Gock. And in Fran Gock he met Richard McCatty, Michael Collins, and other prominent leaders from the 1916 Easter Rising. It was there then they started to talk about reorganising the, 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 the volunteers. So when they were released in December 1916, they came back to Dublin, and with McKee, Mulcahy, Carl Brewer, and then um, they started reorganising the, the Irish volunteers. They became later known as the IRA. Uh, also then, during the general election, uh, Sinn Féin done very well in the general election in 1918, and McKee was very much behind that campaign as well. Uh, during this time, on the military end of things, he rose from captain to commandant, and then brigadier general, OC, Dublin Brigade. So every action that took part during the War of Independence had to go through McKee, whether it was assassinations, uh, anything like that, all raids on places, at all everything went through McKee. Right. So he was, so he's a really central figure at this point in 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 the independence movement. Absolutely, and uh, uh, Michael Collins depended on him a lot. And anything that Collins done or Collins was going to do, he informed McKee force. McKee had to be informed force. As a matter of fact, Collins called McKee to a meeting and asked him would he set up a squad. And McKee wanted to know what the squad was. The squad was to start eliminating. British secret agents around uh, around the country, uh, particularly Dublin and informers. And um, McKee w- took that task on and uh, got the squad organised together. They were known as the Twelve Apostles. And uh, Dan Brain had said once that McKee would not ask anyone to do what he couldn't do. So Mc- Mc- Dick McKee set up the, the intelligence squad that was operating in Dublin. And which became famous because of the, of the assassination of members and of... they took a major part in the assassination of the 14 British. Now, believe it or believe it or not, McKee had about 50 people down to be executed, but they hadn't got enough evidence on him. And that's, that's the type of man McKee was. If there wasn't enough evidence on him, he, he didn't go ahead with it. As a matter of fact, the guy that informed on McKee and Clancy where they were staying that night, a fellow called John Shankers Ryan, a, a couple of months before, McKee had cancelled his execution because there wasn't enough evidence on him. Right. Okay, yeah, and I and he was a farmer. Was he a farmer serving? Ryan? He was a, a fellow called John Shankers Ryan. His sister was Becky Cooper. She was a, a, a madam. She ran a brothel in the Monto where we frequented by uh, British soldiers. And her brother, John Shankers Ryan, was an ex British Army military policeman. And he'd done a bit of touting and squealing and, and stuff like that for Hill Dillon, who was director of intelligence here in Dublin at the time. And it was him that noticed where McKee and Clancy was going into Sean Fitzpatrick's house in Lower Gloucester Street, which is now Sean McDermott Street. There's a plaque outside the door there. And he informed Dublin Castle. And it was raided, of course. And just prior to the raid, McKee had all the names and addresses of the people that was to be executed the next morning. McKee got rid of them in the fireplace. And, of course, he was arrested, him and Paddock Clancy, and taken to Dublin Castle. So just to give people a bit of background on, on that, so the these assassinations that happened, these had been uh, organised. McKee had been... The main Arctic behind these assassinations. Yeah, they met in uh, they met in uh, in thirty five Lord Garner Street. Uh, McKee, Clancy, Collins, Mulcahy, 
they planned for the next day's events. After that event was over, uh, McKee and Clancy headed down to Sean Fitzpatrick's house. Collins and the rest of them went to Vaughan's hotel. And uh, actually, Connor Clune and the other guy that was arrested with him, Clune came from County Clare. And Clune was a, a big into the Gaelic League. Uh, he spoke Irish as much as he could. His uncle was the Bishop of, of Western Australia and then became Archbishop of Perth, Western Australia. Uh, Clune came to Dublin in early 1913 and uh, then returned back to Clare where he became a manager of a seed company, a seed, a, a, a seed uh, plant company. And then he came to Dublin with his manager and uh, to do a yearly audit. And when he was in Dublin, he met Sean O'Connell and Sean O'Connell introduced him to Pierce Beasley, who was director of publicity and uh, for Sinn Féin is also a TD, and uh, he was the f- he was also editor of Ontoglock, which is the forerunner of Cusentor. Uh, he he arranged later on to meet Pierce Beasley in Vaughan's Hotel, which was a hotel off Parnell Square, which was a hangout for Republicans. Uh, later on that day, he went to uh, to Vaughan's Hotel. After Collins and, and McKee and them had had a meeting in, in, in Lower Garner Street, they went to Fawn's Hotel as well. They were upstairs just doing more plans for the, the next morning's events, the next day's events. Uh, Connor Clune was sitting down in the lounge. Christy Hart, who was at the, the porter in the hotel, was also a volunteer and a Republican. Uh, he noticed a Mr. Edwards, one of the guests in the hotel, sitting around the foyer and then making a phone call and disappearing very quick. At this stage, uh, Connor Clune was sitting, wasn't registered in the hotel. And he was sitting waiting on Pierce Beasley to finish the meeting to have a talk with him. Uh, Christy Hart went upstairs and uh, informed Collins and them what was going to happen. I think there's a raid on. Collins made his way out through the roof. Pierce Beasley got out through the back door. People like that got away. Colin Cleon didn't know what was going on. He was still in the lounge when they raided it. Because he wasn't registered, he was taken away. They hadn't a clue who he was. And they took him to Dublin Castle that night as well. So for Conor Clune, it was a, it was a really unlucky event. Very much so. He was an Irish volunteer. He was with the National Volunteers, which was filmed by John Redmond in, in the 1914. The National Volunteers then split when Redmond made a speech in Wooden Bridge. He was the, uh, <coughs> he was the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, and he had asked for the volunteers to take part in the First World War. Of course, it was a split then, and the National Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers. So the National Volunteers went off to fight in the First World War. Conor Clune was a member of the National Volunteers, but he didn't take an active part in it. And uh, there, there is a plaque in Dublin Castle saying that he's with the Irish Volunteers, but he was never actually in the Irish Volunteers. Uh, he was taken away to Dublin Castle that night. Uh, when Gloucester Street was raided, Sean Fitzpatrick was an auctioneer, also a volunteer, a safe house possibly that night. Uh, Clancy and McKee were taken from that house and brought to Dublin Castle. Now, there's a lot of Republicans lifted that night as well. And this is why McKee, to me, is such a, a, a heroic figure. Uh, other Republican prisoners in, in, in Dublin Castle tried to recognise him and he wouldn't say hello to them because he didn't want them implicated. Yeah. And you think about Clancy and McKee, they knew what was going on the next morning and they could have easily gone to intelligence. Sir Armand Winter, who was head of the British Intelligence Secret Service, and tell him, oh, we know what's going to happen tomorrow. We know where Michael Collins is tonight. But they didn't. They knew what was going to happen to them the next day. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't as yeah. you say, inform. And so, Ronnie, you mentioned as well, arrested with uh, McKee that night in uh, Sean Fitzpatrick's was uh, Paddock Clancy as well. Yes, the, the three of them that were arrested that night was uh, Dick McKee, Paddock Clancy and Conor Cleone. Of course, Conor Cleone was an innocent victim of all this. Uh, Paddock Clancy was a, a great soldier as well. and Clancy, of course, was born in County Clare as well, as was Conor Cleone. And Clancy came from a very Republican party. His, his uh, family, his family uh, held Fenian meetings in County Clare in their house, so he was brought up in that environment. 
Uh, Clancy came to Dublin in 1913. He was a draper's assistant. Uh, that's like a tailoring business. And he worked in Dublin. Uh, he joined, again, at the inception in 1913, he joined the Irish Volunteers. He was also a member, like Dick McKee, of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They had a sister unit in America called Clan the Gale. They were known as Fenians, really. Uh, Clancy uh, fought under Edward Daly in the 1st Battalion in the Four Courts in 1916. Uh, of course, he, he was a lieutenant in there. And his leadership skills as well was noticed as well. He took part in a lot of action that was around the Church Street area. The job of Edward Daly's four courts was to stop troops coming out of uh, Marlborough Barracks, coming from the Royal Barracks and coming out of Euston Station. Uh, Clancy was very prominent in that and it was noted as well in that by British officers that was captured and held in there or British officers that gave evidence against him. And that showed at his trial because he was sentenced to, he was one of the ones that was sentenced to death for his part in the 1916 Rising. Uh, and as you know, 16 were executed, 14 uh, buried in, in Arbor Hill. Two of them, Roger Caseman, is buried in Glasnevin, and Thomas Kent is buried in Cork. But Clancy was actually one of the ones that was sentenced to death. There was 93 people sentenced to death for the part in the rising, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison, and he was, then he was eventually sentenced to 10 years, and he was shipped off to England to a prison in England, and he wasn't released till late 1917. When he returned uh, to Dublin, again, he joined up with Dick McKee, and... Uh, Collins, Mulcahy, Brewer, and started to reorganise the Irish Volunteers. Uh, they put him forward to go in the general election of 1918 in East Clare, but then GHQ decided the, rat, the GHQ wouldn't uh, send him forward for some reason. They sent Dev forward, and Dev, of course, got elected. Uh, but Pat Clancy was behind the campaign all the time. Uh, Clancy rose through the ranks again in the, the new Volunteers, which became known as the IRA, and of course it was noted by Dick McKee for his, his operational skills, and McKee took him on as his adjutant and he became Vice Commandant and Vice Brigadier General of the Dublin Brigade. And Clancy took part in many a raid. For instance, uh, when he broke prisoners out of Mountjoy Prison, Clancy was very involved in that. Uh, on the nine attempts that was done on about Lord French's life, he was involved in one of the attempts on Lord French's life. Uh, he also uh, helped uh, Austin Stock Pierce Beach escape from Strange Rate Prisons in Manchester. He also took part in robbing, uh, uh, holding up a garage belonging to the British Army and robbing two cars and a motorbike and all the parts as well and they were used later on with the squad uh, he was also involved in the King's Inn which was a, a barracks down not too far away from here with Kevin Barry at that time taking a lot of rifles and weapons out of there as well so Clancy was very very involved in that Right so, so we're, we're talking about two very central figures to the independence movement and then Conor Clune as a kind of an innocent Absolutely and now, I know them three figures and I'm not uh, discarding Conor Clune we've named there's two roads named after Conor Clune here in Dublin one in Fingless and one nearby here in, in uh, up in Phoenix Park and then we have the barracks called after which was called Island Bridge Barracks we named that after Clancy Barracks after Pala Clancy Clancy Barracks and then of course we named the barracks we're in here at the moment uh, McKee Barracks in honour of Dick McKee so Barra Clancy Dick McKee and Conor Clune were, were, were in prison having been arrested now just before we go any further if Collins had a known that they were arrested, he would have cancelled this operation because he depended so much on Dick McKay and Paddock Lancy. They were personal friends of his. As a matter of fact, uh, McK- uh, Collins was the most wanted man in Dublin at the time. When their bodies were in the pro-cathedral, Collins went in there and dressed them in volunteers' uniform and demanded that he be dressed in volunteers' uniform. And Tom Clark's wife, Tom Clark, who was executed in 1916, his wife said Collins cried like a baby at the two guys in the coffin. And their faces were that badly damaged that the, the, the coffins were sealed. But then when he came out of the church, Collins was the most wanted man in Ireland at the time. He stepped out from the crowd in full volunteer uniform and pinned on the coffin to two good friends, Padder, Padder and Dick, to avoid his finest. And then helped carry the coffin, being a wanted man. That's how much he loved these two men. 
Uh, when, when they were arrested and taken to Dublin Castle on a Saturday evening, there was a lot of Republicans arrested as well, as I said. Most of them were moved out to Beggars, Bush, Barracks or other places. But they kept Conor Clune. They, didn't know, they weren't too sure who Conor Clune was, to be honest with you. So they kept Conor Clune, Dick McKee and Paddock Clancy. They kept him in an old guard room in, in, in Dublin Castle. Uh, the head of British Secret Service at the time was Sir Armand Winter, a very decorated soldier in the First World War as well. And uh, he was head of Secret Service. But F Division of the Auxiliaries was under the control of a Captain King. He was a big, massive man, over six feet tall. And his first wife died, actually died in Dublin. He got married again. And King was notorious. He served mainly in South Africa during the First World War and that. The other guy was a Captain Hardy. Hoppy Hardy, he lost his leg in the last uh, few months of the First World War. But he was highly decorated with the military medal and stuff like that, mentioned in dispatches a lot. And he went on to f- serve in the Home Guard during the Second World War, went on to be an author then and a playwright. He died about 1965. Uh, King died in service in 1942 while still in service. And even though these people were court-martialed after this court from quality, they still got away with, this, with, 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 with the murders of these three guys. So what happened then Saturday night was they were held in there, they were being asked questions and stuff like that. But then Sunday morning when the assassination was carried out and other secret agents started scurrying back into Dublin Castle and word broke that 14 British boys were to be executed in the city. Panic was on. Of course, the interrogation started intensely then on McKee and Cleon and, 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 and Clancy. Hardy and King then verbally abused him. And there was all types of rumours of Bane had been stuck in their backs and their faces being battered with butts of rifles and stuff like that. But some of that can be true because Conor Clown's body was released to St. Brickens Military Hospital, which was then called King George V Hospital. And uh, they had brought in an ex-British Army, an ex-British Army doctor. And he actually carried out an autopsy on Clown and seen that there was 9 to 11 bullet wounds in his body. Uh, also in the back, uh, McKee and Clancy's faces were badly damaged. Sean Kavanagh, who later became governor of Mountjoy Prison during the early Civil War and that, he went with Dick McKee's sisters to claim Dick's body. And he's seen the bodies as well of the two of them. He said they were very badly bruised in the face. There was bayonet marks in them as well. Wow. So it was so what, what transpired ended up being something that was really, really brutal. So on, on this one, on this Sunday morning though, the the um, the assassination took place. And how many how many British British agents were assassinated? In well, initially morning? they had about fifty names down, but as I said to you earlier on, uh, McKee was that type of man that there wasn't enough evidence on these other people so they couldn't assassinate him. And then other guys wasn't in the houses, they were, weren't there. Like Hardy was on the list but he wasn't actually there to be killed, you know. And uh, <clears throat> So there was 14 killed that morning around Dublin, different places. Uh, Pembroke Road, all that place around Balls Bridge and stuff like that. And it was all different. Uh, the Dublin Brigade came in here with the squad to help out in this as backup uh, on the road. Uh, Vinnie Bone was involved in it, Joe Leonard, people like that. Mick McDowell and Paddy O'Daly were OCs of the, of, the, of the squad at the time. They stayed in safe houses while this was going on. Uh, Patrick Fanning was another one that was involved in, in, in assassinations. And their job was to assassinate these British, these British boys because these were brought in specially. They hung around in a cafe called the Cairo Cafe, which was off Grafton Street. And these were brought in particularly from around the Middle East and everywhere to come together to try and get Collins and try and end this war of independence. And they were known to history as the Cairo Gang after They became that. known as the Cairo Gang, yeah. No, people were saying they came from Cairo and all that. Some of them had served out in Cairo and stuff like that. But it was the Cairo Caff up in, up in uh, off Grafton Street. And these were causing a lot of problems for Collins and them. They were trying to get into that bank details and find out where their money and stuff was, you know. Like the, the assassinated your man Bell coming in on, on a tramp coming in from Balls Bridge. He was there to investigate the finances of Sinn Féin as well. So these people had to be taken out. 
and it was up to Collins McKee to put this together. And unfortunately, McKee and Clancy was taken before all this happened. It was taken on the, on the Saturday night. Yeah, on the Saturday evening. And then, following the assassinations on the Sunday, then there was more, there was there were reprisals on, on the Sunday. Well, as I said, after the assassination on Sunday morning, Wood got back to uh, Dublin Castle. Uh, other British agents started coming into Dublin Castle with their families. Uh, Dave Nelligan, who was a great spy in the castle for Michael Collins, had gave great reports of coming in, scurrying, crying, terrified, wouldn't leave the castle. Of course, uh, reprisal then was taken out. Uh, the Black and Tans arrived in Crow Park and a match between Dublin and Tipperary and the atrocities they carried out there. I think they killed about 13 people, maybe into 20 or 30 in Crow Park as well. That was firing on a crowd of civilians? Just firing on a crowd of civilians, yes. Right, by, way of, by way of reprisal. As, as was... As was Something that the Black and Hands had been known for in the war at that point was yeah, and, and, and they were known for this. And if something happened like this for the sacking of Balbriggan, for instance, you know, they sacked Balbriggan, they burned Cork, places like that, you know, and they were let do this. They gave a free hand. Now, don't get me wrong when I say the auxiliaries of the Black and Hands, a lot of them were dedicated, uh, decorated soldiers. Like two of them had actually won the Victoria Crosses. One of them was a fellow called George Onions, and he had won the Victoria Cross. These were very experienced men, especially the auxiliaries. They were officers. And uh, they were very, very experienced. They'd fought through that First World War, which is a bloody campaign itself, like, you know. So they weren't... And they were more afraid of the auxiliaries than the Black and Tans, to be honest with you, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And so there was the events in the, the events of Croke Park and, and the, the massacre in Croke Park, the, the atrocities took place there. But it was it at what time of the day do do people reckon that McKee, Clune and Patter Clancy were killed? Well, <clears throat> what happened was... Uh, when they were taken on Saturday night, and then it was the Sunday morning when they found out then, then they were killed, you know. And then the whole idea was that the plan that the, the, the assassination, they knew there was a massive match in Dublin that day, so the crowds would be in there. Yeah. A lot of the squad members had made their way to Crow Park after it. They had gone to Crow Park itself, like, uh, they would have been in, 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 inside the place. And the Black Towns knew where a lot of these people were gone, so that's why they came into Crow Park, and they knew the massive amount of people would be there, and they could inflict the most damage as such. But McKee and Clancy and Clint would have been killed on the morning. Right, okay. As soon as they found out about the assassinations, you know. So, so it was... It was yeah, and then when Collins heard about this, he got McNamara, who was another uh, detective, and Dave Nelligan, and said to him, look, I want to find out what these guys are. You have to find out. Uh, uh, Dave Nelligan went to the Bridewell. He reported back to Collins. <laughs> and, of course, some of the squad members had said in their witness statements that they were terrified because Collins was going to send them into the bridal to get these and they knew that it was going to be dead instantaneously. So they, they were glad that they weren't in the bridal. Uh, Dave Nelligan said, no, they're not in the bridal, but they did find out they were in Dublin Castle because it was impossible to get into Dublin Castle at the time, you know. And so the the, the implication is that, that Captain Harding and Captain King were foremost in the in the killing of McKee. Absolutely. And, and they had been, there was a lot of talk about them had done atrocities before, both of these, you know. And as I said today, they worked for the, uh, Sir Robert Winter, who was head of the British Secret Service here in, in, in Dublin at the time, and based in Dublin Castle. And of course, Hardy and, <coughs> Hardy and King were a member of F Company Auxiliary Group, which was based in Dublin Castle. So there was a certain amount of controversy surrounding the event, Ronnie, in that, in that it was claimed by the British authorities that McKee, Clancy and Clune had been shot in an attempt to escape. Yeah, well, <coughs> the guard room they were held in, uh, if you see the pictures, the, re- the reconstruction of it, there's uh, ammunition boxes and stuff like that, you know. And the British said that Clancy picked up a grenade. Now, why the hell would he have grenades in the guard room with three prisoners that was highly sought after, particularly two of them, Clancy and McKee, who had had records and who were out chasing. So why would they put them in a guard room with uh, boxes of ammunition and hand grenades and all that? Uh, and as I said earlier on, when the autopsy was done on, on the likes of Conor Clune and that, 
uh, bullet holes were found in the chest and stuff like that, you know, and then bayonet marks found in, in the bodies of McKee and Clancy. So there was a lot of controversy about it. But then there was a court of inquiry about it. And, uh, of course, they got away, Hardy and King got away with this, you know. And they put it down that they were trying to escape from Dublin Castle. Uh, this went on to lead to complications, uh, a lot of complications with, within the organisation, the, the Irish volunteers, and, and on the British side as well. The British were losing here. They brought in black and tans to replace all these seamen that were just leaving the force. They brought in auxiliaries. And it wasn't working. Collins was on top of them with the intelligence squad. He'd assassinated 14 British agents. He'd, ass- he'd assassinated Bell, who was brought in from England to try and find where the funds were belonged to the, or to belong to the IRA, Sinn Féin. And it wasn't working. And to put more pressure on the GHQ staff and De Valera, Collins, Mulcahy and all them decided they wanted to make a big scene in the world scene. Uh, they have a, some of them wanted to assassinate the whole British cabinet, which was ridiculous. Collins knew this would have been stupid and we wouldn't got recognition for executing the uh, whole thing. So they decided that they were going to attack Beggar's Bush Barracks, which was impossible. It was overflowing with soldiers at the time, black and tans. So they decided they'd have a go and have a go at the Customs House. And the Customs House at the time was a very important building to the British Air. There was something like nine departments in it, uh, like uh, taxes and stuff like that inside there, uh, wills, all that type of thing. And they decided to burn that. And they did burn it down with the Dublin Brigade under Oscar Trainer and Tom Ennis and them, and with the Dublin Brigade and members of the squad, they did burn Customs House down. And when that was burned down, then the British realised they're having a problem here. So then they called the negotiations. Of course, uh, Dev was invited to London for talks. He went off for talks. For first, first of all, he went off for talks. And then he came back again. More talks were going on. This time, Dev called in Collins and said to Collins and Griffith, usually lead the delegation going over here to the talks. Dev was already had been there. He knew what was on the table. And uh, Collins had said to him, why are you sending me? I'm a soldier, not a politician. And Collins and um, Dev said, well, you can't be seen. I'm the president of the country. I'm the head of the country. I can't be seen at these negotiations, so I'm sending news. So this is yeah. what happened. And th- this, and, and you would say that this is precipitated, the attack on the Custom House was precipitated by extra pressure put on by the British as a result of what happened on, on, on Bloody Sunday. Oh, on Bloody Sunday, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> they just had to keep that pressure up. They were winning the war. The war of independence was going well for the for the Sinn, Sinn, the IRA at the time, which was known as the IRA at the time. It was going well for them, and they wanted to keep that up, and they wanted to make a statement around the world. You know, we weren't getting recognition for the Mickey Mouse things we were doing, like flying columns, hit and run, and that. You know, we wanted to make a massive statement, and it was planned to assassinate the British Parliament, the British government. It was planned to hit one of the biggest barracks in Dublin at the time, biggest push barracks. But they decided on this particular building, the Four Courts, which was a Gandon building as well. Right, um, and so these events, which have which have gone down history, in history in, in such a, a, such a famous part of the of the history of the of the Irish War of Independence, um, the loss of McKee, Clancy, and Clune, um in subsequent years, and what we might go into now is just a bit of a history of, of where we actually are at the moment, which is McKee Barracks, named for uh, Dick McKee, named in his honour, um, and originally Mar- Marlborough Barracks. So, so. Can we can we, can we get a bit of the history of say the the origins of Marlborough Barracks here beside the Phoenix Park? Well, after uh, after the negotiations in London and the signing of the treaty, it was brought back to Dublin and it was eventually ratified. You know, De Valera walked there. It was eventually ratified by the government and they won by I think it was sixty three to fifty seven votes. And we kept the treaty and of course, Irish Civil War. Dev walked out and of course, the Irish Civil War went on. Collins went on to form the Irish the Irish Defence Forces, which we're known now. Then was called the Irish Free State Army. 
and uh, known as the anti-treaty forces and the pro-treaty forces. And we had a mad civil war till 1923. And a lot of good men were lost during the civil war. Michael Collins, Cal Brewer, um, uh, 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 Harry Boland, people like that. Very, invent- uh, very people that was involved in the Irish volunteers at the, of the formation of it. They were gone then. The civil war was very, got very brutal. Brother killing brother. And the worst thing about this, the pro-treaty forces and anti-treaty forces knew where each other's hideouts were, knew where each other's uh, weapons were stashed. So it was very easy to capture each other and deal with trusties on both sides. I mean, when you look at it, uh, that period, we nearly executed more during the Civil War. 77, we executed of our own. More than the British executed from the time here in 1916 to 1922. When I talk about executions. So it was a really... It was really bitter, yeah. And it just ended. It didn't end up with a surrender. It just ended. Yeah. Uh, Liam Deasy called the surrender at the end of it, after Liam Mintz was killed as well. Another great soldier. So, uh, yeah, so that brought a conclusion to the, uh, to the end of the Civil War. And then, uh, it, again, of course, the British were already gone. Well, some of them are still here. As a matter of fact, this barracks that we're staying in, uh, believe it or believe it or not, uh, at 11 o'clock at night at the back gate up at the Phoenix Park here, Emma Dalton, Tom Ennis and some major generals arrived here and two 18-pounder guns were handed out to them. They were brought down and set up to start the civil war in the forecourt. So the guns were handed out here at night. And there were still British forces in this barracks at that time? There were still, still British forces, yeah, serving in the height of the civil war. So the guns were handed over. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, there was some officer on holidays. I don't know where he was. And uh, he was going by and he seen this gun. And he had a look at it and he scraped it off and there was a big FF on it. And he took the number of it. It was one of the guns that was handed out here at night to start the Civil War in June, nineteen twenty-two. And and he was the guns were sold after the war to film companies and all that yeah. in America, and the gun was subsequently brought back here. I think it's in that loan now getting repaired. Wow. So hopefully it might be brought back into the barracks and put on and put on display. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. it was handed out to, because you were brought from Athlone or from Athlone, and Tony Lawler, who had served in the British Army, he was one of the ones that was here to fire the guns. As a matter of fact, when they brought them out the forecourt, they forgot to dig the guns in. Yeah, the back blast. A few of them were knocked out. You know, they were very. And the the, the bombs that the British gave them weren't great. They were just like tomatoes hitting the forecourts, like you know. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of them went back, fired over into the Royal Hospital Mainham, where General McCready, the last British general, was was living, and he sent for him at all. He said, "What the, what's going on here? Fired in here, you know? Yeah. Before you fired at the forecourts, like yeah. you know. So that type of thing. So the civil war was over. The British were gone. And then we started to look at it and rename the barracks, you know. And this particular barracks we called, it, it was renamed in 1926 after Dick McKay. And what and the barracks itself, so previously had been called Marlborough Barracks. And well, what, is, what is the origin of, when was Marlborough Barracks itself uh, opened? Well, what, what happened after the 1798 rebellion, after the 1798 rebellion and uh, the French revolutions and stuff like that, and the British had to rethink their security around our empire, particularly the coastal countries like Malta, Gibraltar, and particularly Ireland, and particularly Dublin, because Dublin was the second city of the empire. They built the Royal Hospital Comanum here to bring back their wounds, and that from the, they wouldn't bring them back to England. They built them here, just not 20, 25 metres from us up the road here, we have a British Army graveyard with 1,000 British soldiers buried in it from 1916, and then we brought them home. They built places like that. So this was the second city of the empire. So they decided that they wanted to secure Dublin, so they started to build the neck nice of barracks around Dublin. And if you come into Dublin from Dublin Port, you'll see the first barracks is Pigeon House Fort. The fort, the remnants of the fort are still there. Then you move on up along and you have Beggar's Bush Barracks, the first barracks taken over 
by the Free State Army, with General Paddy O'Daly and them from, from the British. Then you move up the canal again and you have Portobello Barracks, which then became known as Cahabrua Barracks. You move up the canal again, you have Griffith Barracks, which was then Wellington Barracks. You go up the canal again, you have Richmond Barracks, which was then called Kyo Barracks after Tom Kyo, one of Michael Collins' men. You come around then, you had an artillery unit up in Chapel Lizard. You had a magazine fort in the Phoenix Park built in 1734. Then you had Collins' Barracks built in 1701. And then you come up here to Key Barracks, was built in 1888. And they were post they had a camp in Collins Town, which is now Dublin Airport, and a camp in Rush. So they really had Dublin surrounded. So this one was built in 90, 1888 to 1892. It only took four years to build. As a matter of fact, we're here longer than the British. The British were here for less than 20 years. We're here since 1922. Yeah, wow. That, that's something now I'm sure people don't kind of realise. Yeah, they and the barracks is beautiful. When you have a look at the barracks, you know, and as I said to earlier on, when I, when I seen this barracks for the first time, it has these lovely French chateau, Swiss, it has these... Ter- Peppers, turrets, it's really, really nice. And, you know, the rumours that was the, the plans were mixed up and it was supposed to be built in India and the Indian barracks was supposed to be built, that type of thing, you know, but it's, it's not. There's no, there's no truth in that at all. Because if you go into town and have a look at the Richmond Hospital or the front of uh, the, 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 the market in uh, off Weckford Street there, you'll see the same design as well. So beautiful brickwork. The brickwork was made over here itself across the road in Soldiers Field where the Mighty Quarters are. There's 88 mighty quarters there. They were built in 1957. They were up in 1957. But that was a soldier's field over there. And they made the brickwork there to kill them for the, for the bricks to be to build the barracks. Wow, fantastic. And it is, it is an amazing looking building here. Yeah. And the barracks itself is steeped in history because uh, the characters that passed through, the Prince of Wales was actually here in this barracks. When he left here and he, got, he died of the fever. He was stationed here in the barracks for a while, the Prince of Wales. Which the, Prince of Wales was that? Was uh, that uh, the Prince of Wales would have been... Prince of, it would have been King Edward's son. He would have been due to be king, but he got the fever and he died. Characters served in this barracks. For instance, we had Baden-Powell served in this barracks here. And Baden-Powell went on to found, found the scout movement. Yeah. So Baden-Powell was stationed here with the 13th Hazards. We also had uh, <clears throat> a fellow called Lawrence Titus Oates, who went to the South Pole with Scott. Yeah. Have you ever heard of him? I've heard of Scott. I haven't heard of Titus Oates. <laughs> Titus Oates was a great cavalry officer. He fought in the Boer War, meant in the dispatches. And he came back here to this barracks in about 1892, and he, uh, 1893-84, and he said, Dublin is very gloomy, the barracks has changed, it's got more militaristic, and he wanted to get out of it. Then he heard Scott was going to um, the South Pole, and uh, he, his own money, he put his own money into it, which was about 50 grand at the time. It was about 50 grand now, and he, he donated that to Scott, and he didn't, he didn't ask for any wages, and Scott brought him to look after the horses. And that was uh, Scott's fault. He brought horses, and the horses sunk in the snow where Roald Amazon, who got there before them, brought dogs. to killed the dogs. He ate them, you know, that type of thing. But he left here. And when, when, they, when they got to the South Pole and they sailed Roald Amazon's tent and the, and the Norwegian flag, and on their way back, uh, Scott notes in his stories that uh, Lawrence Titus Oates was getting uh, swelling in the feet and hands, going black and everything. And then was a great, he made a great statement and said, I'm just going outside. I shall be quite some time. And he went off, and he died. I've heard of this story. I didn't realise it was, yeah. that I didn't know the name, but I've heard the story. Yeah. There was Tom Crean who was with him on, the, on that expedition. Crean said he was a great soldier. And like on Christmas Day, Scott was a real military officer. He put a, a, a blanket down and had, had meals with the officers. Yeah. Where Captain uh, Lawrence took his oats, ate with the men and looked after the dogs and all that type of thing, you know. So he was stationed in this barracks as well. And that was during the early, the late 1900s. Then bring it into 1916, the four soldiers 
that was killed in the Easter Rising, left from this barracks here. They were bringing five ammunition wagon loads up from the docks. They were bringing them up to the magazine fort in the Phoenix Park. And the magazine fort in the Phoenix Park was built in 1734 because before that the British stored all their ammunition in, in, in Dublin Castle and they had an explosion. And they realised that this could have been worse. So they built the magazine fort in the middle of nowhere. Where it's a bit of space around yes. it. Yeah, so the fire. wagons were coming up here. And as you were passing up Collins Street, you looked up and seen a bit of rackets going on. It was obviously Pierce outside reading the proclamation. So they sent word back to McKee Barracks here. And uh, the, <coughs> the, the Lancers from here, the 16, 17 Lancers from here, went down. And they were under Colonel Porter. And he said, no, lads, we're just facing Sinn Féiners here with shotguns and pikes. So, you know, just trot away there, you know. So when he got to Nelson's Pillar, they opened up and killed a load of them, you know. Yeah. They're all buried up here, the road here. Grange Garmin Cemetery. So they were the first soldiers killed in the 1916 rising. Then bring it on to uh, <coughs> the War of Independence. Uh, during the War of Independence, Kevin Barry was brought here after he's caught in Church Street trying to kill the Duke of Wellington Regiment. He killed three guys in there trying to take their weapons. He was brought to Mountjoy Prison. And his court martial was held here in Marlborough Barracks because it was so near to Mountjoy Prison. And there was so much to get him released. Even it approached the King of England. He approached everyone trying to get rid of him. Collins tried to break him out of out of Mountjoy Prison, it was impossible to do. So they brought him in a wagon here every day into into McKee Barracks here for his for his trial. So he was tried here. Also, Robert Barton was sentenced to three years in prison. He was in here. So the barracks is very historical. So then in 1926, uh, RTE Radio Radio Air they broadcast here for the first five years of their service from McKee Barracks here. And then in 1926, we decided to call the barracks in honour of Dick McKee. Uh, so it was, because he lived not too far away from here as well and the barracks went on then to play its part in the Irish Civil War uh, and then during the, during the Irish Civil War itself uh, Ned Broy was stationed here with the Broy Harriers and stuff like that in the 30s because they were afraid after the assassination of Kevin O'Higgins and that so and this, this would be in the say in the 1930s after the end of the Civil War after the end of the Civil yeah. War yeah he brought in a group called the Broy Harriers because Kevin Kevin O'Higgins was assassinated in 1927 uh, <coughs> The parish went on to then, during the Second World War, to play a smaller part in the role of the... Of the, the and when the parish was taken over in 1922, we held it for about a year, and then the guards took it. And then we came back in in 1920, late 23, 24, and we've been here ever since. Yeah. And the oldest unit in the Defence Forces, which was formed in 1926, was the Equitation School. And they're still here today. Who are still here, yeah. And they were formed by, helped formed by a judge called George Royal. He was a lieutenant here in 1916, serving in Trinity College as part of the officer training corps and he was involved as a render of the Decos Biscuit Factory and General Sir John Maxwell when he arrived here to quell the horizon he sent for him and he said I believe you're a solicitor he said yeah I want you to prosecute the 1916 leaders he said what will you charge them with? he said you make the charges up he actually was involved in getting Tom Clark Pierce and them executed he prosecuted them but he realised there was a problem here they wouldn't let call witnesses around him like Pierce had called his brother William, he wanted to see his brother William, stuff like that. And other witnesses, the, uh, other, other than 1916, had asked for witnesses to be called and they, they weren't called. So he complained about this. And after that, then, they were able to call witnesses and stuff like that. Yeah. And even some of the volunteers in the witness statement said they didn't know whether he was prosecuting or defending them. He was that good. But then Royal went on with, with William T. Cosgrave to help form. The Army Equitation School. The Army Equitation School here, and for people listening at home, the Army Equitation School compete internationally at um, equitation events around the world and have a long, long history of, of involvement. Absolutely, and they've won the Aggie Can Trophy a number of times, and they've great Irish riders and great horses 
uh, in the Ecclesiastical, and we promote Irish horse still today. And we're still involved in many competitions around around the world. So the original name of the barracks, uh, Ryan, uh, Marlborough Barracks, where, where does that come from? Well, when the barracks was completed in 18, uh, 1892, uh, they decided to call the barracks Marlborough Barracks. Firstly, it was called Grange Gorman Barracks, believe it or believe it or not, because we're in the borough of Grange Gorman. Then they decided to call it Marlborough Barracks after the Duke of Marlborough. And the Duke of Marlborough, of course, was the Lord Lieutenant here in Ireland uh, between 1876 and 1879. Now, the Duke of Marlborough was uh, John Spencer Churchill. He was the grandfather of Sir Winston Churchill. And, of course, Winston Churchill's father was Randolph Churchill, a well-known British politician. And, of course, there was a lot of scandal about him in England at the time, reference gambling and stuff like that. So he was told to bring his son with him to Ireland as a secretary. And he came here to live here as a secretary in a little house in the Phoenix Park called the Little Lodge. Uh, the house itself was a very famous house because in that house, uh, it was the last house to get electricity in the Phoenix Park in 1937. Also, when Randolph Churchill came to live here, he lived in this house with his wife and uh, Sir Winston Churchill, sorry, and his brother Thomas was actually born in the house. And Churchill lived in that house for about seven years. And when he came back to visit here in the 1930s, he couldn't believe how small the house was. So um, I must say that that's a really fascinating account of the history of Dick McKee, of, of the barracks here, and indeed of, of the events of Bloody Sunday in uh, November 1920. So thanks very much for coming on to the show, uh, Ronnie. It's really much, really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I'm delighted to do it, to talk this morning on McKee and on the barracks itself. As you know, I have a passion for it, and I explained to you earlier on, I have a passion for the barracks. And uh, just a while ago there, there's a plaque on the main gate there that not a lot of people know was there, and it's there since 1888, and it was falling apart. And uh, I just went to the CEO, which is Ed McCauley here, who's been a great help to me. And uh, I asked him, could you get it replaced, get it fixed? And he did. And they got it replaced for me, so I was very happy with that. And then, of course, I approached Ed on about getting, the GOC had mentioned it last year on his inspections that, you know, next year's the 100th anniversary and uh, maybe we could do something for it. But I had already been planned that I'd love to get a plaque to erect it to my key in, in the barracks, you know. And that's happening now next Friday on the 20th. The GOC will be here at about 3 o'clock and we're going to unveil a plaque to McKeos at the church. And of course, they have a bench as well, with his name on it as well. Which is, which is fantastic, which yeah, is a real, a real, a real nice, nice thing to market that, especially the general in charge of the area is, is going to come in and, and, and go. Yeah, and, and I believe that the general, uh, Brigadier General Tony Goodmore, is very much into history himself. So that's, that's a great asset to me as well. So hopefully I can use it for a few other things as well. Yeah. For, for the <laughs> Maybe a museum, you know. <laughs> to continue chronicling. We'll, we'll absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. We'll keep pushing away from it because it is a really important thing to cover. And again, um, it, it's fantastic now to have, to have gotten the episode out and I'm sure people will be very interested in hearing about it um, when we push, push it out, um, hopefully in time for the anniversary. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media platforms and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to visit the members area of military.ie. Today's special episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available for download on Spotify, iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in December with a Christmas special episode. So until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.